welcome and thanks for tuning in to Real People, Real Talk. Relevant conversations that take you from surviving to thriving. This is the podcast that goes there. My name is Paul Calco and I'm your host. Now let's talk. Today we are talking racial reconciliation, white privilege, the council culture, and even the blue flu that's taking place in Atlanta, along with other recent events that has really just rocked our nation. But I do want to remind you, we're not here to straddle the fence. Mm-mm. We're here to be bridge builders. And as the body of Christ, we must be willing and intentional in having these hard and maybe sometimes awkward, but necessary conversations. We seek peace and we seek unity, of course, but we also seek change justice, accountability, and repentance. So let's talk. My guest today, we have Allison. She is the founding, one of the founding members of the nonprofit organization Reset Camp, where she serves as the assistant camp director and also serves as a college at Young Adult Women's Zones pastor at Celebration Church in New Orleans. She's pursuing a degree in psychology and counseling, but most importantly, she is a Christ follower that just so happens to be black. And then we have Matt Magoo, husband, father, activist that has served the local church for 35 years as a pastor and multi-ethnic church planter. He is the Catalyst Director for Unite Atlanta and One Race Moment Atlanta as well. He's the interim lead pastor at Cumberland Community Church. Matt is a Christ follower that just so happens to be white. But with Matt being um, in Atlanta and Allie being in New Orleans, hopefully this will be a great conversation just with the Falcons and the Saints rivalry. And so we'll just keep it at that. And then I know, right. And then we have Kat Armis writer and podcaster from Miami is currently residing in LA. She's working on her first book. What women on the margins teach us about wisdom, persistence, and strength. What she writes at the intersection of women, scripture, and Latinx identity. Kat is a Christ follower that just so happens to be Cuban American. So here's the conversation. In light of recent events, um, Allie, talk to us. What's what's the vibe like in New Orleans? Um, well, New Orleans is a melting pot. We have so many different people from different backgrounds. Um, so we've had peaceful protests uh, after George Floyd uh, got murdered. We had protests, I want to say, seven days of the week, um, and they were all peaceful. They had one problem with the police uh, with one one time, but, like, they cleared it up. Uh, I'm very grateful, and I love my city, you know, who that all day. Um, uh, But we're very resilient. It was so funny when people were talking about protesting down here. Uh, I've been born and raised in New Orleans my whole life, so it was like, we're we're afraid people are going to ruin the city. I was like, listen... Katrina ruined our city. Ain't nobody about to mess up nothing because we know what it's like to rebuild. Uh, but we, there's a hunger for restruction from city officials. We have an excellent mayor, uh, the first African-American female mayor uh, in our city. So, like, there's just... We, What's up? Yes, yes. Like, so we see change and we won't change Uh and like, like we, I know we're gonna get in the conversation later, like good cops, bad cops. But I am, I'm proud of my city in New Orleans. I'm, I'm very proud of it. Yes, New Orleans, that's good stuff, man. So, on the West Coast in Los Angeles, can talk to us? What's, what's the vibe like out there in light of recent events? 
Ooh, LA. So I moved out here about, uh, it's about to be four years, uh, well, three and a half ish. Um, and LA has been, I, so I came from New Orleans, right? So that's where I met Paul and, and Ali. I, I, I lived there for a few years and it's definitely a different world out here. Um, but particularly where I live. So I live right by downtown LA. I live right by uh, the police station. And so, and I live on a main road on Sunset Boulevard. And since everything started, I mean, it's been a constant, I don't know, you can hear it now. There's, there's helicopters, sirens, 24 seven sirens, helicopters, ambulance. Um, I live right by where all the biggest, you know, I mean, LA is a massive city, right? So I live by where all of the biggest protests were. And it was, it's been just a constant, um, literally like not a millisecond where I'm not thinking about it, hearing about it. You know, I mean, there's, uh, right across the street. And, and I can show you that, I mean, there's people have put up signs, say their names. There are, you know, graffiti everywhere. Just people have gone by and just like, you know, <laughs> screw the system, whatever, you know, pardon my French, but I mean, it's just been really in my face constantly. And so it's had me reflecting and thinking a lot about place and land, right? Like the, 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 the land that I'm sitting on right now, where my, where, where, where I'm living is built. And I think about, 1992, you know, Rodney King, LA uprising, right? Like this isn't anything new. Like mm -hmm. this is something that has been happening for a long time. And I feel it. I feel it in the land. I feel it in just around me. Right. And so what is that? And I've just been reflecting on what does that mean? Like interracial, intergenerational trauma, right? Like mm. this sort of thing that just, that has been lingering in the air. And so when I said earlier, you know, we prayed and I said, I'm thankful for disruption because it's this, this, it's just been kind of just lingering. Right. And, and I said, I, I moved here from New Orleans and I think about that all the time. And I'm actually working on a piece right now where I say I'm still mourning New Orleans because when I live there, um, we talk so much, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Bywater. We would talk so much about mm. the spirituality, right. And the voodoo and we need to pray against the evils and the demons and, and all of these things, but never once did we pray for the evil and the demon that is systemic racism in New Orleans, wow. right? That wow. is the, the history of, of racism. I mean, New Orleans is a racist city. It's built on yeah. the backs of slavery, right? It's a port city. So you yeah. had people would come in. And, I mean, slavery was, it was, the hub, it was a hub of slavery. Yeah. And I still mourn my time there that I didn't pray against the evils, right? The demonic activity that is systemic racism and the intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. that is in New Orleans, right? And so I, I, I bring all that up to say that I think so much about that now being in a place where this isn't new, right? 20 years ago, the same things were happening. Yeah. So that's what it's like here in LA for me right now. So we see the vibe in New Orleans. We see the vibe in LA. Now let's travel back to East Coast and see how things in Atlanta. Uh, Matt, can you speak to that? Yes, living in the A, the ATL. So here, man, we have uh, Atlanta is a historic city, obviously, when it comes to racial reconciliation. I mean, you think of even Booker T. Washington that came here to speak at a national cotton um, convention years ago and was a, a famous speech that he gave. And then W.B. Du Bois, um, you know, taught right out of here at uh, Morehouse University, Clark University. It's the UC. This is a 
this is the birthplace of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, this is where he preached up until he was assassinated here in Atlanta. It's where he's buried. The King Center's here. So all of that wrapped up with our history into now this um, explosion of tension between uh, black and white. Once again, uh, the injustices that we're seeing is reviving here in Atlanta what we see is a new civil rights movement that's taking place that finally the church is kind of engaged in, which is huge, a huge step forward uh, compared to what it wasn't uh, 60 years ago during the civil rights movement. So we're seeing that in Atlanta, man. Just this last weekend, we had 10,000 plus Christians marching in the streets, worshiping together, praying, seeking heaven together in what we call the one race movement that's been going on now for about two years. So for such a time as this, man, the church is rising up. Uh, Lecrae came out over the weekend and spoke to crowds where I was uh, trying to lift up black voices and, um, you know, bring justice to the streets of Atlanta. But man, it's, it's hard because we just had, as you guys know, it made national news again that, you know, this young 27 year old African-American man was shot in the back twice by a police officer, um, which, and today, by the way, was his uh, funeral at Ebenezer, Dr. King's church. And so the city, again, were mourning the loss of Rayshard Brooks and his family. So uh, the city's grieving, um, but there's a movement brewing, and the church is finally a part of it. So as you guys can can see from literally from around the nation, like there is something um, brewing South, North, East and West. And um, also Matt, before we move on, just with you being in Atlanta, I was looking online. I was made aware of something called the blue flu. It's like there's police officers that are calling, calling in sick and not showing up Um, with you being, being right there in that area. Like, could you speak to that? Yeah. You know, we have uh, the first African-American female mayor here in Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottom. She's become pretty uh, well known in the last month and is a fantastic leader doing a great work. And she is not playing, man. She is not messing around when it comes to decision making, when it comes to any form of police brutality. And so, man, she has uh, stepped up her game that way and has seen officers being um, indicted and uh, loss of jobs on the police force, which has created this um, natural tension of uh, our officers in Atlanta who are like, well, if it's so risky for me to be an officer right now, I don't think I'm going to come in. And so a lot of them are calling in sick. Like uh, the other night I was listening to news and there were 18 officers on one shift that called in uh, saying they're not coming in for one reason or another. So there is a uh, huge tension. Now, um, our mayor says that that's not going to take away from the safety of our city, that there are other municipalities coming alongside of uh, Atlanta Police Department, but it obviously is a concern. Indeed, indeed. And other thing that's going on in Atlanta, as you mentioned, and this next question for whoever wants to jump in, but I've watched several conversations, like nat- national conversations um, between um, black and white Christians. Um, but one of the ones that occurred in Atlanta was with Lecrae, and he took a lot of heat for his perceived like soft response when 
Louis Giglio suggested that slavery was a white blessing. And um, yeah, we can talk more about that. And now people, uh, specifically Twitter and social media, they call themselves, quote unquote, counseling the gray. And for those that don't know out there, the council culture, it refers to withdrawing support for your public figures or companies after they do or say something that may be considered uh, offensive. So it's basically group shaming. And so I said out that to say this, I want to ask this, uh, this panel, should Christians take part in this quote unquote council culture? Yeah, I watched that whole thing. Um, and I've been watching the responses to it. Uh And so something that I want to say before I even say anything is that I'm very big on um, not adhering to very colonial sort of ways of looking at or having these sort of faith conversation. And by that, I mean these very dichotomous ways of like life is very messy and gray and complicated. And so when we have these conversations to say, well, cancel culture is wrong or cancel culture is right. Well, let's be more nuanced than that. Right. And obviously I'm not saying that that's that you don't agree with. I'm just saying that that's, so that's where I'm coming from. Right. So when it comes to cancel culture, um, I'll talk about what I think has been helpful in the idea of publicly calling someone out there. And I'll use that, the idea of publicly calling someone out. So public figures, right. For the longest time, um, have been able to say a lot of really questionable things. And we sort of just like, all right, you know, blindly believe it. Um, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and, and, you know, she called and said, well, I don't, I don't agree with everything you say, but, and I said, well, hold on, let's stop right there. Do you agree with everything everyone says? (laughs) Like, is that something that we're supposed to do? Um, First of all, second of all, an example, you know, John Piper, someone who is very big in our culture, he said a lot of, a lot of questionable things about race and about women and about, you know, whatever. Um, but if you were to engage in a conversation with him, would you start the conversation? Well, hey, John Piper, I don't agree with everything you say, but no, we should be okay with dialoguing with people we don't agree with. And so with that, I say, um, what's been helpful in this idea of publicly calling someone out, and I believe it was Lisa Sharon Harper on Twitter that I was really thankful for her response to Lee Giglio. She said, hey, you're a public figure. You have hundreds of thousands of followers. So here's a public rebuke right? Not like, hey, I'm going to cancel you or like, forget everything you've ever said because you haven't said any helpful things to someone. But you've made a public statement that millions of people view. So here's a public rebuke. And I think that that is something that um, because we live in a globalized social media world, hey, you know, I I have to expect it if I'm putting out podcasts, right? If I'm tweeting out things to to a lot of people, like I have to expect to be publicly rebuked. And I say that also with the idea that we also need public accountability because we know that, unfortunately, the church has been a place where there's been a lot of abuse, sexual abuse. The church has perpetuated a lot of racist ideologies. And so we need to have a space for public rebuke and public accountability to a lot of things that have been hurtful. But I will say there needs to be space for public growth. There needs to be space for people, for reform, right? Because I've probably said a lot of really stupid things and I hope that if I were to do that and I would get a public rebuke, that there would be space for me to apologize, to learn, to grow, to repent. I think that that is something in this whole racial conversations we've been having. 
I've seen a lot of people take kind of two, two responses, either public repentance. Oh my goodness. Wow. I've gotten so many things wrong. I'm sorry. Like I'm sorry. I'm going to learn and I'm going to grow. And I, I, that's where I find hope in a lot of these conversations when I see that. Um, so I will say that, um, there needs to be public accountability, public rebuke. If you're a public figure saying public things, um, but also space to grow and space to learn. I love that balanced approach. And you're exactly right. It's very nuanced. Kind of reminds me of scripture, right? Too much is given, uh, much is required. So I'm glad that you nuanced it that way with public accountability, public rebuke, and also reform and also grace as well. Uh, just to piggyback off, I think what she said, what Kat said was like beautiful and much better than I could have ever thought <laughs> or said. Um, but I think that I know when I watched it, I think everyone knee-jerk reaction, especially as an African-American, when I look at Lecrae, I have a connection with Lecrae. So I have an expectation for Lecrae because I listen to Lecrae's music and I hear how he's an advocate. I hear his story and his music. I pay, I go to his concerts. And so to see it, I'm like, Lecrae, what you doing, friend? Like, what's happening? And I think that it's a... I tell people all the time that like I am, I'm an African-American and I accepted Christ. I, I was born in this, in, in this melanin, but I had to make a conscious decision to say, I surrender my life to Christ. And so I, I feel like my initial thought is always black. Like my flesh is first. So I like my initial thought was like, when I first heard, I'm like, uh-uh, we done. Like I was, I was ready. I'm like, mm, no, we, we, it's done. But I like the spirit is so quick and was just like, but I'm not done with you. So how are you going to be done with somebody else? And I'm like, oh, okay. And then you hear the apologies. Cause I just, I just didn't want to cancel Lecrae. I was like, cancel passion, cancel Chick-fil-A, can- cancel all of the above, but we're going to get canceled. Just, just get rid of all of it. But, right. <laughs> but like, I, I think I, I have to put myself in that situation and I have to, I try my best to I, I pray and ask God, let me see things your way. Let, let me hear your thoughts. Help me with that. And when I look at a conversation, it's just like, I can't be a person that's never satisfied. We, I can't shout, the church needs to have these conversations. And then when they have a conversation and they mess up on the first conversation they had, I can't be, y'all can't have no more conversations. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. So I have to accept the apology because that's what the church does. When someone messes up, we say, okay, you see where you messed up and you messed up big time and you understand blessings don't have no color. So now that we got past that, let's make sure next time we speak, we don't say that again. So now I think it's important to like give room for growth and give an opportunity for um, for change because now I can accept your apology, but just like true repentance, it comes with the action. Because I feel like even with certain companies, they could come out and say, "Oh, we are so sorry for being racist." Okay, let's see your guidelines. Have you changed in your guidelines? Have you changed in the structure of your um, executive board? What actions are you taking step in to show me that you are trying to attempt this change? So I think uh, I'm interested in seeing the steps and actions after these type of conversations, because I'm not going to lie to you. If, if I do not see a change, not just talking about Lecrae in that situation, but if there is, let's say if there's a clothing line or something and I found out there's sexual abusers, they're not getting any more of my money. 
like especially if you don't own up and you apologize like you're I'm not I'm not an advocate for that. I don't I'm not going to support that because you do not honor someone's body and someone's life like I do. Like and I I cannot support that. So depending on what what I'm canceling, like it's like what Kat said, I can't just put cancel culture in a box because there's some things I'm going to support and there's some things I'm not because I don't agree with everything. I'm not about to get a t-shirt that say I love Satan. Like I'm not <laughs> I'm not interested in buying that that type of shirt. So I can't say I'm not going to cancel everything. But when it comes to this, I honestly believe that Christ has given us more. And know for me personally, he's given me grace among grace among grace. So I have no room to say any Christian is canceled because of a mistake they made publicly. And those are some wise words. Um, those are just, just some wise words. And, and when I first saw it, you just saw the sound by it, like, Oh, I know you didn't just let that man say that. So I had to pause and just watch it, the entire thing. A lot of times people can take things out of context and just run with it. I've watched other public conversations like here in Houston had Joel Osteen and John Gray pastors. And then John Gray also talked with Stephen Furtick and they had those conversations. And um, this one wasn't my favorite. Um, I feel like they didn't listen to Lecrae as much. And I just want to say this, this is real people real talking. I got to get this off my chest. Like don't just want my black face but not be willing to hear my black voice. And so yes. they was talking. And then that part, that part, that's hashtag, that part right there. Like why wasn't Lecrae amen. doing the most of the talking? Listen, right. listen. Right. They invited him there. I'll, I'll be getting somewhere. Right. And then they didn't even have to. Wait, I, I'm a white brother. So let me answer that. I think you all know the answer because when Louis the lead pastor, he's in charge of that mega church. And so he's, it's his stage, it's his place. And whites are uncomfortable having others talk about race. They like to control the conversation. We know this. It's the, it's, I'd say it's, I say it's a game, but it's not a fun game to play. And so when you invite guests of color on your stage, man, that you need to honor them and give them voice. And uh, Louis bless his heart. He's, he's not on the journey far enough yet to even kind of have that kind of a real conversation. Um, That's, that was obvious to me. Thank you so much for for interjecting that. And before I started recording, I did see where he made a public apology and like, that's still my brother in Christ. And so with that public accountability ability also comes that public grace. But they were talking about the white blessing. They were talking about white privilege. And I remember being on the Instagram live and they was like, Paul, what do you think white privilege is? I gave the best answer that I could, but I'm a black man. So, um, Matt, could you tell us, like, what is what's white privilege? Yeah, man, you know, I'm all about it. I'm in it. I'm living it. I'm enjoying it. (laughs) And I'm making fun of that. But I'm being honest with you that whites have been majority culture since the inception of this country. That means whites control. Whites have power. uh, Whites set the laws. uh, Whites set the norms. So, of course, there's white privilege. So if you have white skin, then you have what some would say are unfair advantages and even unspoken advantages. Like for whites, it's not an obvious thing because it's normative. But for other uh, people that are non-white, it's very noticeable and offensive. And so, you know, that's, that's kind of the dynamic of it that, um, you know, just the, uh, 
the the fact that because whites are majority culture, there's a, a definite advantage, a definite privilege in, in not just the social parts of life, but economics, uh, when it comes to getting the job, when it comes to getting uh, a loan, when, it, you know, just you go down the line, um, the educational disadvantages. Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's an unfair. But whenever there is a majority of anybody, the majority unfairly has advantage and privilege. Man, thank you so much for speaking today. And it's, it's not something where as a black man, like I want white people to feel guilty for their privilege because I have privilege. Like I, I didn't know, like once I was preaching a sermon and before I preached it, I invited students into the thinking process and I was talking about fear and faith. And I was asking them, what are some things that you fear? And these two um, female college students said, one of the things that I fear is being raped. And like, it never crossed my mind as a man to have a fear like that outside of, you know, going to prison. But outside of that, that thought has never crossed my mind. So I have male privilege and ladies are not asking me to be guilty of that, but to acknowledge that I have other privileges. Like I was privileged to have two parents that love the Lord. That's another privilege. So thank you so much for, for speaking to that. And we're not saying that, you know, just because you're white, we expect you have, have the best life ever. It's just certain fears that you, that I believe you don't experience. Like, uh, Matt, have you ever got pulled over by a police officer? Yes. Okay. When you got pulled over, did you fear for your life at all? I never have. No. Okay. No. And that's the difference. Like when I get pulled over, I don't want to walk in right. fear, but there's some anxiety when I get pulled over and I just um, get even extra humble. Like, all right, officer, I'm about to reach for my, um, my wallet and here's this and that. And so that's what we talk about when, when we talk about white privilege, nothing to be guilty about, but just acknowledge it. And so as we're talking about white privilege and um, with the phrase black lives matter and like with this, with the movement that's going on to, to speak to social injustice. I want to point this question to you, Allie. What are some phrases that people unknowingly, um, maybe they don't realize that's when they say it and may come off as offensive or dismissive. For example, when people are, were so loud about the protests and the rioting, but they were super quiet about police brutality. That's one of the things that just irks me. So I want to hear from you. Um, I wish I had enough time. I don't want to take up your whole podcast. Um, <laughs> but I, it, it, like, speaking just of the protests of what happened, it baffled me. It confused me on how it was okay to protest for haircuts and for gym openings when a pandemic is happening and it's a legit death to everyone. Uh, we can protest that and you have a right to do that because you're an American and you can. But when there's a direct uh, offense and target on a human being that is filmed and shared around the world, um, when that protest happens, send out the military, send out policemen, put on the riot gear. Like, like they need to go home. That is just, that baffles me. And for people that can't see that, that scares me. Um, other things when people say, I don't see color. I, that's only allowed if you're blind. If you are blind, it's okay because you look, you cannot see. Exactly. Uh, if you colorblind. But I feel like I've never been colorblind before. But even if I watch a black and white movie, I could clearly see who's black and who's white. 
Right. I don't like when people say they can't see color because that's like, you know, you're not acknowledging the beauty that is me. I love being black. Please see my color. I want you to see all of my melanin. And I love your color. I believe that's what brings culture. And that when you see me, that lets me know you respect me. When you say you don't see color, that means you don't see me. Um, uh, another thing, as a black woman, when I even when I speak like this, I was telling um, my pastor, so like I'm a I'm a life group zone pastor. That's what they call it here at Celebration Church. And I have a I like college young adult pastor. I was talking to him. I was like, you know, I said if I if you and I said the same thing. I said, if I was to say it in the same tone, the same speech, what you said, they would say that I'm being aggressive, that I'm being mean, that I'm being uh, emotional uh, because I am, I'm a woman, but also I'm a black woman. Or so I have to watch what I say so I don't come off as the angry black woman because I don't want to be perceived that. So I can't say what's first come on my mind because to not offend somebody, because not only am I a woman, I'm a black woman, but if my if my pastor was to say it oh he's he has so much authority oh he has so much passion oh he loves us so much that's why he speaks to us that way as if we don't serve the same god so other like micro things of like oh can i touch your hair no my i am not a museum i'm not i am not like i'm a piece of art but no this is not a touch and see i'm not a as seen on tv button no, you cannot, you cannot touch my hair. Like now my friends, they are more than happy to because I am a person of education. I love talking to my light-skinned friends, my white friends, letting them know, like this is, I have a protective styling right now. Like these are full locks and I, I like to educate them so they aren't going out there. Like I'll, I'm, I am your friend and we have a relationship. Like I've had pre-old managers tell me because I have a fro under this telling me I need to tame my hair. I need to do something with it. Now, like I'm still growing with the Lord. So my tongue sometimes quicker. Uh, and I was like, get yours to stand up. Cause that's why you mad. And that, that shouldn't have been my response. I should have just called HR, but that was the first thing that came to mind. Cause I'm like, I click on my feet. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's like, uh, it's crazy right now. Cause people are saying, I'm not racist. I have a black friend, but they don't, no one's wearing their Ku Klux Klan uniform outside right now, but I honest, some people may have it in their closet. That's how I feel. So it may not be um, a macro aggression, but it's very micro, like little things. Like, oh, what you say? It's so ghetto. Ghetto is a place, not a being. Come on. So, that, so let's let's do that. Or you speak so well for being black. I, I speak English like you. I don't. I don't understand. And then that's the whole, like we can go into coding. Like I know I, I, I'm probably talking different now than I would talk to my homegirls because I have to, I have to put on different layers to be accepted, to be where I am because I have so many blockers that like that could stop me from doing what I know that I could do. But because of the people that are before me that can allow me to be there, I, I'm black, I'm a woman. So I have to sound presentable. I have to have vocabulary. I have to be able to know when to use a comma, know when to pause, know when to stop, know how to carry myself, go this extra mile to cover up things that you just see. Because when you hear me, if you hear like I'm in New Orleans, there New Orleans has this strong accent. I only get this accent even when I get really, really mad or really, really happy, it come out. So that's the only time my accent really, really shows. You may hear it in some words. But there are people that have a strong accent. It may some people may find that unprofessional, 
when I find it beautiful. They could be the most a doctor in the room and have this accent, but because they're African American with this accent, they may be looked at differently because of it. So it's just it's it's interesting. It's an interesting world we live in. I'm sorry, I uh I went in real quick. Uh, oh, you are good. I'm gonna say one thing and then I'm gonna see if Kat wants to say something. Just reading your facial expression wanna give you a chance to say something. But I relate to that. This is my first time publicly sharing this, but I remember um, at the college that I attended, and it was a person in authority there, I won't say no name, but we met and was talking about ministry on the campus. And one of the things that he said, and I know it's hard, so I know he didn't mean it the wrong way, but one of the things that he said was, man, you're not the average African-American man. You're not like the rest of them. And initially, it's like, oh, thank you. But then as it sunk in, so what is your definition of the average African-American male. Like, what if I looked at you and say, well, you're not the average old white man. What if I was to, to turn the tables on you? And so, Allie, I, I connect with you there. Um, Kat, did you want to speak to that before we move on? I mean, I don't have much else to add. I think, Ali, you touched everything really well. Um, I would just say theologically, that has been something big for me as well. Um, you know, born and raised in Miami, Cuban, Catholic background, um, you know, and then I moved to a very white um, seminary, a very white area. And it's my entire experience growing up is almost like invalidated or, you know, my entire family needed to be saved because theologically it didn't look like the way that, it, you know, the way that they practiced their faith or the way that they understood God. Um, very devoted to the church, but Cuban and Catholic, or you get what I'm saying? And so I think that even theologically for me, um, having to come to terms with like, well, wait a minute. And, and that's, I mean, that's what I'm working on right now, right? A sort of decolonizing um, Iberian Catholicism. And even within that decolonizing, you know, Protestant white evangelicalism that deemed, you know, my upbringing as unsaved or my grandmother as not genuinely Christian. I think that even that is a cultural sort of, you know, so that's on a whole other theological note. Um, But yeah, everything else that Ali said was perfect. (laughs) Cad, you're opening up a can of worms. I didn't plan on saying this, but just with the seminary that we went to, you know, I enjoyed my time there, but you even see it in the way of their teaching I remember taking history of Baptist and um, my professor was so passionate as he was teaching and he would go on and on and on. And uh, one day he was like, all right, today, out of all days, I'm going to talk about black Baptist specifically. And then he got to the end. He really didn't finish. He was like, well, sorry that we ran out of time. And I'm like, you didn't run out of time for their other classes that we talked about uh, white Baptist. And so we even see it that way or even another professor that was teaching the history of Christianity. Um, and it was from such a Eurocentric point of view. And to be honest with you, I use all my skips in that class because I'm not about to sit in here and just, you know, listen to this when I know that's Christianity from an Afrocentric point of view. But I digress. So, Marla, Wait, I think we were in that class together. <laughs> I, was ab- I was about to say that. I was like, I think we was in that class together because I barely remember because I skipped so much. So I was like, nah, bro, I ain't got time for this. I feel that. So Martin Luther King said this, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And to take it a layer higher, Jesus calls us to be peacemakers and we need to lead out. 
Um, Kat, I saw one of your tweets where you said we should be leading the charge against racial injustice instead of scrambling to respond. But for those that that are dragging their feet, I'll pose this question this way. I give it to you, Kat, first and everybody else feel free to chime in. But how should the church respond to current events in our nation? Yeah, so this is a good question. And I think because of that, right, in the sense that sometimes it can be framed and I don't think you framed it this way because I know you, but it can be framed as this like, oh, how do we respond, church? And it's like, well, <laughs> if you're if you are leading the way of Jesus, if you're living the way of Jesus, it's not a response of scrambling. Oh, what can we put together to to say to act like we care? It's like we should be leading the charge, right? And I particularly say the way of Jesus, because again, right, going back to European expansion in the colonial period, I mean, the cross was used, literally the cross was married to the sword and Jesus was married to empire. And from that moment forward, we had a very, you know, empire Christianity, right? That, that That's where slavery comes from, right? literally the Iberian Catholic church, right? I mean, it's not like, so, so I particularly say the way of Jesus, right? And so when we talk about, and again, I I talk about decolonizing so much because that's literally my study, but when we talk about sort of like, you know, decolonial theory, decolonizing from this, decolonizing, but even from white evangelicalism, you know, I just wrote an essay on how white evangelicalism murdered my grandmother. And that's the idea that they considered her life, that it was nothing, right? Her faith didn't count, her life, you know. So anyway, so I I say this, the way of Jesus, because that's what we're trying to do, right? Like, I saw someone tweeted the other day, like, if Jesus saw a statue of himself somewhere, like, he'd probably tear it down too. And it's this idea of like, well, what is right? Like what, what would the way of Jesus look like? And when we talk about like these conversations of racial injustice, I mean, yeah, we say that they're awkward and they're uncomfortable and that's perfectly fine. They should be awkward. They should be uncomfortable. But my goodness, we shouldn't be the last ones having them. <laughs> you know, maybe we should be the first ones having them, but we understand the history of the church. And we understand whiteness has been connected to Christianity since the beginning. So, and whiteness, right? Not white, necessarily white people, but the idea of white superiority, white supremacy. And so whiteness has been attached to the church, has been attached to Christianity. So we need to be detaching that. And so when I say that the church should be leading that, the church should be leading that in that we have been connected to white supremacy from the very beginning. So how are we detaching? How are we actively repenting, decolonizing, and then leading the way, right? Because the way of Jesus, I believe, would be leading the way into these things, not scrambling to put together a response, pretending that we care, right? Going back to Ali, what you were saying earlier, like, I want to say follow up, right? Like, all these, you know, these little responses, like, great, cool. You know, there's a lot of people having this conversation, probably shouldn't be having them publicly, but that's a whole other thing. But how are we completely like leading the way in even in our repentance in our all right, moving forward in our learning in our growing Um, and and a scrambling to respond just doesn't that to me doesn't say way of Jesus, right? That doesn't say this is what Jesus, that to me just says that, oh, shoot, we're just trying to respond to current events. And the church, and that shouldn't be the position of the church. It should be leading in these conversations in these current events. Yeah, I would say that, you know, the church has lost her prophetic voice 
And let me be specific. The white church has lost her prophetic voice because of her segregation in America, especially, you know, Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour of the week in America, which is a sad commentary. Here we are in 2020. That is increasing. There are more multi-ethnic blended churches, which is beautiful, multicultural, multi-ethnic churches. I think we're up to like 14 to 16 percent of all churches in America have at least 20 percent other or at least 20 percent minority that kind of says, oh, that's multi-ethnic. But let me just say to how much I admire and respect the black church in America because they have always had a voice. They have always lent their voice. If it wasn't for, I believe that the black church in America is the conscience, the spiritual conscience of America always has been. It's just that the white church has muffled the voice, has not let that voice had its place. Um, and so thank God for the black church. So I always tell my white brothers and sisters, we need to pay attention to how the black church has done it right over these years. How the, uh, we need to, the oppressor needs to take a lesson from the oppressed. And so there, there just needs to be a, a re um, engaging of the prophetic voice of God in moments of crisis, national global crisis, and especially when the crisis has infiltrated the church by it being already too segregated. That's good. Y'all both have said like amazing things. I am, I am blessed uh, to be a part of a church that is multi-ethnic. Uh, we have, um, we have our own Hispanic. Uh, I hate the word Hispanic. I'm trying to get out of here. I learned something earlier this year about like Hispanic and that's not like a real thing. So by Latino and Latinx, I read a book and it said Latinx uh, brothers and sisters. Um, and like we have, they have their community and like our pastor recently, he has always said he desired our church to look like heaven, but now he says we need to act like heaven. And that encourages me as an African-American woman. And even though it's a uh, multi-ethnic, I am still a minority and it's predominantly uh, white, but I am, my church gives me hope of the future. I think that it's interesting now because it's like, if you're silent, it's a problem because I honestly feel like 2020 was a year, everybody felt like 2020 is year of vision. God is going to like, it's just so much vision is vision. I feel like when you have 2020 vision, there's clarity. That means you can see clearly. That means things are exposed. That means things that were kind of fuzzy are getting cleared up. And I feel like that's what's happening uh, this year from the ground up. It's, it's been a crazy year so far, but I think this is something the church has missed the mark on previously. I tell people all the time, George Floyd was not the first. Like, I feel like the biggest movement was when Trayvon Martin, like that was, that's when it began, I believe 2014. And I wasn't at the church I was currently at, I'm currently at now, uh, but they were quiet and I was in youth ministry and I was just like, and I had teenagers coming to me because they could relate because they're a young black dude and they wear hoodies and they walk to the corner store and just go get snacks and hang with their friends outside because there's nothing else to do in the communities because there's food deserts and there's no resources and there's nothing in those communities. So what else are they going to do except go walk to the store and walk back home? Um, that's a, another conversation. But I think 
right now, like Kat said, like there needs to be continuous conversations. It's, I was telling someone, it's going to be uncomfortable in the beginning. I remember being a teenager in church and sex was a topic you didn't want to talk about. The church did not want to talk about sex. It was just like, sex is bad. Don't have it till you get married. Bam, that's it. But now you hear more churches and pastors, relationship goals and talk marriage retreats and uh, singles retreats. And we talking about sex and all this kind of stuff. So it was awkward at first, but now like now the conversation is going. So it's still weird to hear like your pastor talk about sex. Like it's weird, but you're like, okay, at least you're talking about it. I feel like not to compare sex with racism, but racism is that's a tough topic to talk about because you're tithers. Uh, may not agree with your stance in this. The people and your and your your leaders and your top volunteers and the people that help you run the church may not take a stand in this. And I feel like that's just an L we may have to take for the kingdom to make this a normalized conversation. To just like we could say we don't stand on this, but we stand on this, and we don't stand on that, and we stand on this. Like this needs to be something that we do. We will not allow any type of racism either covert or overt, we don't allow it. And but we will stand is the word of God. So I believe now churches that I've been I've seen panels, I've seen discussions. I know personally at my church I have people in my ministry. And as I'm so blessed, like in my community, I have white, black, like Hondurans, Guatemalans, like er, all of these people. And like people are coming and asking questions. People are coming and repenting and saying I once looked at an African-American and thought this, and I know this was my flesh, and I want to have the compassion of Jesus Christ. How can I do that? So like these, these aren't being filmed, and that's what I love because these are, this is what Jesus did. Jesus wasn't out doing all of this. He was having one-on-one conversations with the people, but the people he called out was the Pharisees because you know better and because you're the people that's leading these people. So I think that like the church is doing, it can do better as they move forward. It just like consistency is key. And if we're not consistent in the conversation, then it will die down. And especially now as people like everybody kind of stuck at home. So like when we get back into the building, vacation Bible school, mission trips, Christmas parties, uh, New Year's resolution, like events, planning. I I fear that it'll go back to the back burner until there's another hashtag and another video that's released. And that's that's my biggest fear. I don't want us to wait for another hashtag and another video to be in the forefront. Just like I said, like with the civil rights movement, the black church was the hub. Underground Railroad, the black church was the hub. The, the church was the solution. It wasn't part of the problem. So I think now that we are trying to become more of a community, both black and white, and, and try to be more diverse. Like hearing gospel singers, seeing the contemporary songs and seeing even the blend in the music, it's time for us to come together and be that center and be the voice of the country and allow God to have this revival that we say that's about to happen and, and pray and seek and know that he can do this, but we, we gotta get out the way and just let him do what he's gonna do. All of y'all have said some things that's very thought provoking. Um, and for my listeners out there, if you, you know, are offended by the fact that we said the black church, well, it wouldn't be a black church if we would have been kicked out of the church in the first place. But I digress. Um, Al, you also mentioned something about how some leaders 
you know, they may not be so focused on, you know, black or white, but they're focusing on green. And depending on what stance they take, they may lose some tithers. And if you're afraid of losing tithers, you're in the wrong profession. All right. Just want to say that. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and also just with this conversation, I know there's been like this tension between our African-American brothers and sisters and our white brothers and sisters. But at the same time, Kat, can you speak to this? Maybe even correct me. And I, I, uh, depending on how to, I may edit this out, but I, I really want to know, like, what's wrong with saying Hispanic? Because, like, I'm in Houston now and I got a lot of uh, Latina brothers and sisters and I just want to know the right thing to say. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So just that, I mean, some, so like, for, for example, right now I'm taking, uh, I'm in the Hispanic summer program and it's, a, it's an older term that uh, is now sort of being re, you know, um, I mean, I'm not like offended if you call me Hispanic, but I prefer Latina. Um, and the reason is because Hispanic is, it is a, a U.S. construct. So we don't, we never made that up, that made up that term for ourselves. And it was created for the census. And so it was created so that they, um, you know, so that the American, the U.S. American government can kind of keep track of who is from where and who speaks what language. And, you know, so, um, yeah, we didn't create that term, you know, so sort of like, white U.S. American government did. And so sort of our way of resisting against that is just calling ourselves Latino, Latina. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you for that. Um, and that's the beauty of these conversations because we don't know what we don't know, but when we know better, we should, we should do better. And so, I mean, kind of switching gears, I remember seeing on social media, a guy by the name of Richie said this, the Good Samaritan story is not just an example of compassionate spirituality. It is the critique against religious passivity. So if, quote unquote, church people won't work for justice and mercy, God is going to find somebody else who will. So with, with that statement in mind, I just want to pose a question to to this panel here um, personally. What are you doing in your life to bring about racial reconciliation? Yeah, one thing that we're doing here in Atlanta and even me personally, as we started uh, two years ago, uh, multi-ethnic conversations for pastors throughout the city. And so we started with one uh, lunch and learn location, and now we're up to four locations through the different uh, regions of Atlanta where pastors are gathering white, black, Asian, Latina, and having conversations about what does it mean to have cross-cultural competency? How can we grow as leaders of God's church to understand various cultures not just to be able to attract them to our church, but to truly honor cultures, give dignity to people, no matter where they're from or what, what culture or language. Or, so that's been one thing that's been tremendously rewarding is to seeing pastors literally coming to the table um, and having these very important conversations. So always feel like uh, for me as a white brother and pastor, I, I need to continue to look for challenging opportunities to uh, onboard my white brothers and sisters, especially pastors, to educate and relate and advocate. And I, so I call it, we got to be in a new era, ERA, educate, relate, advocate. And so that's just something that is I'm passionate about personally. And I use my social media as a platform for that as well. And just all of my life is about what, what do I got to do to help move this forward and bring justice to the earth? Before the, the ladies go, I'm glad you went first, man. Cause I want to ask you this. Um, a few weeks ago, I saw something that you posted 
And when I first read, I'm just going to be honest, I, I was a little bit offended. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, why would I be offended when somebody is confessing sin and they're repenting of it? And so the Lord convicted my heart and I had to repent of it. But you you posted on Facebook that you was a recovering racist. It was hashtag confess it, hashtag repentance. And could you just speak speak to that before the ladies uh, chime in? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'm looking for opportunities to be use this platform in a provocative way to teach and to leverage the gospel. And for me, it's like, as a white brother, it's like, that's part of my journey is looking back at my sin issue, my, I, the ideology of white superiority and supremacy is baked into me. It is baked into me from what I learned as a child with my family, uh, from my church folks that I grew up with, from my school friends, you know, from everybody in my community and my white culture propped up this ideology of we're better than. And so that, that at the core is racist. It's racist training. One-on-one is what that is. And so and I believe that we've all been, unfortunately, in America, conditioned to believe that lie of Satan himself, that white is right, white is better. That's just a lie. There's nothing better about a different skin tone. <laughs> There's nothing better. So um, I, I just felt like it was, I heard uh, Pastor Albert Tate, who's a friend of mine, a pastor out in California, one of the largest, fastest growing multi-ethnic churches, African-American brother. I listened to him one morning and he said, you know what, guys, people just need to start confessing that they're recovering racist. He goes, wait, I'm going to do it right now. I'm a recovering racist. <laughs> and Albert, he's, you got to know him. He's funny and engaging and powerful at the same time. And that was my takeaway where I'm like, you know what? I, I just need to put this out there. I need to go ahead and, and dismantle some of the um, people think if anybody calls you a racist, that's like the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And it is pretty intense. But I wanted to dismantle that by saying I need to confess and say I'm a recovering racist. So it's almost like you know, somebody that goes to the AA meeting and say, hi, my name is Matt. Hey, everybody, I'm a alcoholic. And so I wanted to play off of that a little bit to make the point that it takes a lifetime, even though God's forgiven me of that racial thinking and tendencies, it is a lifetime of recovery because white supremacy and white superiority is so strongly baked in. We're conditioned that way. So I just put it out there. I just thought, I'm just going to put it out there and say, you know, 20 years ago, I had a huge uh, revelation where the Lord uh, put me at an altar with 300 African-American pastors and white pastors together. And we lamented, we cried, we repented 20 years ago at the altar. And that was a huge turning point where the light bulb went off of, oh my gosh, I, I have these tendencies and struggles that are seriously ungodly. I just wanted to say, Matt, thank you for that. I think that that's, that's really good. I, that's something, and I guess I'll, I can just go ahead and also answer your question, Paul, but so much of moving forward requires that we look back, right? Like so much requires that we have to look back. We have to look back at the, you know, the history of, of where we come from, of our, I mean, our denominations, our everything, right? Our churches, our 
the institutional church, the whatever, you know, the on the ground church. I mean, I think that so much of being able to move forward takes so much looking back to understand how we got to where we are, why we're here and how we can dismantle it. Because we don't know if we don't know what, you know, what it's built on the foundation that it's built on. And so I think for me in this work, you know, a lot of it is, okay, let me do my own homework of going backwards, right? Let me do my own homework of, of, learning as much as I can about our past so that I can help in, in this process. You know, I'm a writer and I podcast as well. And so as I move forward in my writing and my podcasting, you know, and I've been talking about this, this stuff for a bit, but I can't continue to do that and continue to offer a way forward if I'm not continuously looking in my own heart um, and constantly looking at ways that I have internalized. You know, so I say that just in the same way that I have upheld racist ideologies, that I have upheld these things, I've also done the same thing as being a woman. I've upheld and perpetuated sexist ideologies and sexist, you know, ways of being and ways of understanding the world. I mean, we, as women, you know, as a Cuban woman, you know, I myself have been a part of the system. I've been a part of the patriarchal and very male-dominated and white-dominated system. And so I need to constantly be undoing those things in myself too. Um, And I think specifically for me, you know, because racism is rampant, even in Latino, Latino communities. And so for me, I have to start with my own community too. You know, just like Matt, you're doing it with your white brothers and sisters. Like I got to, you know, talk to my freaking, you know, my Cuban and my Latino, Latino people that, um, you know, we have been the same way, you know, that's what colonialism did, right? That's where white supremacy was born. And so where have I've been and my ancestors have been um, colonized in that sense. And so, so to kind of wrap up and, you know, what is it that I'm doing? So yeah, on the ground conversations, um, hard conversations, right? With family members and, and with friends and with my community members. Um, and with that, I'm able and continuing to learn and continuing to um, where I can help educate because that is very exhausting in many ways. Um, yeah. You know, as, as you guys know, I mean, it's not your job, Ali or Paul, to educate every white person on, you know, issues of racism. Thank you, because um, I'm but, tired, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I do this thing where I, on Facebook, maybe this is also part of what I'm doing, my way of moving forward, but I'll, when I see, because I see the audacity that some white people have to just comment on my black friends and just say things that I am just like, you... So I'll pop in, leave a little comment, pop out. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to start a fight, but I, I need to come in here for a second because they're carrying this weight by themselves and heck no. But anyway, so little things like that. But, uh, you know, besides that, having these hard conversations, you know, doing this work, um, writing where I can write, working on decolonizing where I can decolonizing, educating where I can educate and um, doing things like this, having conversations like this. Yes. Um, I want to thank Matt as well. I think that was very bold. I think that was very, uh, I, Paul, I like these conversations too. And it's like, like you black first. So you got that first knee jerk, like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> and you're like, wait, yes. so you, you what? <laughs> Cause it's like, so I've been around you all this time and you this. And so. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do I need to press but, unfriend? Like what's going on here? <laughs> it's like, but you're like, let me read this again. Let me step away. But I'm, I am personally grateful for that because, uh, as I said earlier, I've been having conversations um, with people in my community. It is so funny. 
the Lord presented this role to me uh, last year and I wasn't for it. I feel like, and that's how you know it's God when you say no the first time and he like, nah, this is really what you're supposed to do. Um, and so I continue to ask like, why do you have me here? Why do you have me here? And then when all of this went down, I, when the George Floyd thing happened, I, I was grieving. I wasn't able to understand how I was feeling so much later because when you grieve, you you know you're grieving because it's a loved one. But I couldn't understand how I was grieving someone I didn't know. But uh, but I was grieving and you have Zoom meetings and you have all of this. And like I said, I'm on a church staff. And so when this is happening, I am not one to hide my facial expressions. So I couldn't hide my hurt. I couldn't hide my pain. I couldn't hide... Uh, I would have my camera off, but my tone of voice wasn't, I'm a very joyful person. I love to have fun. I love that, but I wasn't, I wasn't in the mood. I wasn't for recording a welcome video. I wasn't for recording announcements because I was hurting. And I think my, my, I have amazing coworkers. I'm beyond blessed about a community that I have. Uh, and when it was like one morning, they was like, Al, we want to see your smile. We want to see your face. And when I removed my camera, and they saw my face and I tried to crack a smile because I, I fought for joy. But when they saw that, like, whoa, like our sister is hurting. Like they had to see, they had to put put a face with the hurt. And once they saw that hurt, I think that pushed the, we got to do something. Because they may, I feel like they may not have caught, understood it like I did. But it shows that empathy. It shows that compassion. If my sister is hurting, I'm hurting too. And I think that little fire uh, of my amazing coworkers of like, I I stand with you. I, I am with you. And that brought on conversation. And I've been in conversations with uh, my people and my team and my leaders. And they sh- like, like met. People are straight up saying like, I looked at you and I didn't like you because it is. And then I have one of my black leaders like, well, I'm buying all black. I'm done. And like, so people are like, people are hot. And it's just like my, uh, like we're going through James right now. It's quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And I noticed when I've been applying that, even as a black person, listening to the white people, like confess. And it's just like, I have to be quick to listen. And then like speak slowly because when I speak slowly, I'm listening to what I'm saying. And I'm also allowing the Holy Spirit to shut me up so he can say what he's supposed to say and slow the anger. I shouldn't, I, even that little anger that I have, it won't fester and it won't grow because I listen, not just to the words, but to the heart posture, to the, to the body language, to the Holy Spirit that my brother or sister is, is, uh, is speaking with as well. Um, so I think it's just, as I said before, it just has to be consistent conversation and people just have to listen. I think people aren't listening and not, not a listening in response, but listening to learn, listening to hear. I always, I've been telling people like, if, if any of you, I don't know if, if any of you were to come to me crying, whether you have hurt someone or if someone has hurt you, I wouldn't have asked why are you crying? I want to comfort you. Like, cause I see you crying. I want to make sure you're good. And then once you're good, we can have a conversation of why you're crying. You could confess and say what you did because you cried, or you could tell me what somebody else did. But my first initial thing is I want, I see you crying. I think what hurts is like some people are crying, like legit crying or crying out or just hurt. And people 
don't care about that. They want to know the why. Like you could get to the why later. But like where where is that compassion? If we say we love Jesus, the Jesus in my Bible showed compassion. So like if you say you read the same Bible as me and you're the same Jesus as your Lord and Savior, like I don't understand how we have different feelings when it comes to empathy and compassion. So I think that's the first step in having healthy reconciliation and continuous conversation. And I agree, like Kat said, like, you know, I, I, I can't I don't have the energy to educate everybody on black history. But what I did, like some um, someone on my church staff and myself, we made a, a resource page, a document with articles, with books, with YouTube videos, with movies uh, and podcasts. So people could just go to that instead of keep coming to me, go to that. And then we could talk about that, I think. But as a as a leader, I, I have to be open to the conversation. I have to, I'm like, I was called to teach. I was called to lead. So I, I will have those type of conversations, but I'm, I've learned myself, I'm not having conversations with brick walls, but I am willing to have a conversation with someone that says, I'm just trying to relearn. I'm trying to understand. Why is it this way? Why do I feel this way? I honestly, if you tell me you, you racist, but you just kind of want to hear where I'm coming from, I would rather that than you attempt to be stuck in your ways than uh, just trying to push me to the side. If, if you're a follower and believer in Christ, if we are part of the same body, I, there's just an expectation of empathy and compassion that I have because we serve the same God. And so I don't even know where to respond with that Allie or Kat or Matt, but uh, with Matt, like when, when I saw, when I saw that comment, um, I had to realize I can't judge one person based off one post. I've been Facebook friends with him years and I constantly see him um, planning multi-ethnic churches and uplifting his black brothers and sisters and being all about Christ. I just want to say that like, and I had to check myself too. Like if you see somebody post one bad thing, don't, don't judge them just on that and be willing to have a conversation, have a conversation with them. And, and I wasn't going to say this, but Ali, you brought up some, some good stuff where now I'm getting, you know, different coworkers are, you know, inviting me into the process of helping them with their sermons and things like that. And I don't mind. And so I'm just going to be honest. This is a real people, real talk. Part of me is like, I've been black since 89. That, that's my flesh. Like, all right, so now you want me. That's my flesh. And so mm-hmm. as Ali said earlier, that's the, the black person in me, that knee jerk reaction. Like, you know, why you didn't ask me sooner? And for, to my coworkers, that's, um, listen, like I work at a, a church that's very diverse and multi-ethnic. And I like it. At, at one meeting, we just kind of stopped the business. And he said, I want to hear from y'all. And when he did that, I was like, man, you want to hear our voice. But that's another story for another day. But then the other part of me was like, this is a moment that I should not squander. The yeah. black voice has been amplified and I need to steward this moment. Well, I need to get out of my feelings. I need to not take offense. And if I'm asking them to listen to me and now they start listening, I can't get offended just because I thought they should have you know, asked me sooner. And so I just want to say to my African-American brothers and sisters, as our um, white brothers and sisters or our Latina and Latino brothers and sisters are asking us certain questions. Don't get offended now that they didn't act sooner. Let's be happy that they're asking now. Amen. And so all that to say, you know, as we talked about the Facebook post and a lot of just all that's going on, social media is neither good or bad. It's a tool. But lately, uh, just like most election years, it's very ugly. 
It's very divisive place, even for Christians. So I want to ask you guys just to give, and we can start with you, Matt. Um, just any words of wisdom on how to best engage in social media during this time? Yeah, you know, I, it's challenging. It is really challenging. And so um, I, I had someone post on something, uh, a comment on something I posted today and a white brother. And I'm just like, oh, man, why did you say that? You know, and I'm just like, I don't really have the energy right now to respond uh, but I'm going to, you know, but there are times where it's usually better not to restop, respond in the moment, but to push pause. And especially if it's a hard one that, you know, gosh, this is going to take some time or sometimes it's best to take it off the post itself and, and private message someone and just say, hey, I saw you said this, man, can we dialogue or can we call? Can I call you? Um, so I, I just think that. Um, because what that does, man, if we respond of, of everything, I would have no time to do any ministry. <laughs> it would, I mean, and people just, I mean, dial, you go way too deep into these comments. And I'm like, oh, and when I start seeing my friends go after somebody, I'm like, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't fall for that. <laughs> so I always say, man, have a lot of restraint and push the pause button. I have to do that personally. So thank you so much, Matt, for, for sharing this. So, Kat, I want to hear from you. Just all this craziness with social media. What wisdom would you give to people? So what I was saying is that I feel like, well, not I feel like, but social media is still very new. And so I think we're all still sort of figuring it out, you know, and we want to say like social media isn't real life, but it is real life, right? And and so we're still trying to learn how to navigate being beings that are both in real life and also on the inner and by real life, I mean, person to person also on the internet. So I feel like we got, we all got to give ourselves grace. I say this all the time because we don't know what the heck we're doing when it comes to social media. I think about me on social media 10 years ago and I'm like, Oh my goodness, the things that you supposed and you know, so of course it changes and we're all growing and we're all learning. And so I think we definitely got to give ourselves some grace. So we might say something really dumb or respond in haste and, you know, be really angry. And, and so I always try, and, and remind myself of that, like, oh my gosh, we're all still learning. Literally all of society, the entire world is still learning. Um, but I will say, if it was not for social media, we wouldn't be where we are now with Black Lives Matter. And so I will always, always say that if, if it wasn't for, the, for cameras on our phones, and if it wasn't for Facebook Live or wherever people post these horrific videos, we would not be where we are now. And so I think that we need to keep raising awareness, keep writing, keep speaking, keep doing what we got to do. Um, I think, Matt, you, 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 you know, hit the nail on the head. We got to pause sometimes. We got to take it private sometimes. But don't stop, right? Like, don't stop posting. Don't stop. Because, I mean, it, look where we are because of that, right? Um, 100% prayer and discernment and 100%, you know, restraint. Um, I was talking to actually two, two friends from NOBTS today and, and I had messaged them because I kind of popped in and I responded and then I popped out and I was like, I'm not going to say anything else. I just really didn't say, you know, but I said, I said, you know, I see you guys battling a lot of people by yourselves, you know, and, and I was kind of like, sorry if I just pop in there and they were like, no, it, you know, we, we, it really is just us a lot of the time, whatever. 
you know, and I said, remember, like blocking or muting or whatever can be a spiritual discipline, right? Like if you need to do that, because there are people that aren't trying to learn. There are people that are just straight up trying to be jerks, right? There are people that are just trying to just stir the and stir the pot for no reason other than just being jerks. And so I think like if you need a block, if you need a silence, whatever you need to do as a spiritual discipline, do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think we're living in. I think we are where we are right now because of social media, um, both the good and the bad, right? Um, so yeah, y'all said everything so well. I agree um, with both parties. I think everything has good and evil in it. Everything has pros and cons. Um, I agree that without social media, conversations would not be happening in churches. Without social media, uh, I feel like churches can see, it put more fire (laughs) under some people because it's like, I've learned that like when millennials, we're used to getting our news and updates right there because with Twitter, like I just scroll down and it refreshes and it gives me the update on whatever story I need. I think that, a lot of our churches are older. So like, you know, they wait for the newspapers or like the news to report. And I think that it's, we're all learning how to like integrate in this thing. Cause Melinda's like, answer now. And like, everybody's like, we, we have a draft. Uh, do you want to see the draft? And so it's, it's an interesting place, but I, my biggest thing with social media is like, if you're, if you're going to post something, be prepared for the conversation to follow. I believe that whatever you post, you believe, you stand, you should have read it, and you press submit. Uh, Facebook has this beautiful thing called edit. So if you did not mean what you said, you could have changed anything. They have another beautiful button called delete. If you did not mean what you said, it could have been deleted. Uh, You posted, you shared because you had a belief. I would encourage people to read dates. I would encourage people, because people are posting articles from 2014 and we in 2020. Read dates. Don't just get sucked into headlines. Read full articles. Watch full videos. Make sure where you stand, wherever you stand, matches what you post. Because uh, I look at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter as like the new resume. Like it lets me know who you are. It, it gives me a background of you. Like when I look at your pictures, I want to see what what you're interested in. What's your vibe? Like when I look at your Facebook feed, like what's what you talking about? What like what's your like? Are you just like a person that reposts recipes, or are you into like this? And I'm not a I'm not a person that posts a lot on Facebook because I I like these type of conversations. I'm a face to face. I pick up the phone. I'm not even a fan of text messaging because I want. I feel like so much stuff can get misconstrued in words if you don't know how to use them correctly. Uh, so I'm a person. I want to hear tone of voice. I need to hear that you're okay. I want to hear about your day before stuff. But I know I've seen the power of Facebook and how it can heal and how it can hurt. Uh, I know I posted something on Facebook and I wasn't expecting it to get so much attention as it did. But when I saw the power of it, I was like, oh, and I just shared my heart and my feelings on the George Floyd incident. And I saw how many people felt the same way as me. And I saw how many people were didn't know I felt this way. And so that was a beautiful avenue. But like Kat said, some people are just jerks. Uh, some people are trolls, like they're legit trolls. And the crazy thing is they're people you know <laughs> that are just trolling you. So um, don't go for the clickbait, like be bold. And I'm a big person of, I will congratulate in public and critique in private. 
I will not give you the audience you are searching for on Facebook. I, I'm not interested in your Twitter fingers. Let's have a conversation. Uh, because if you can post this, we could talk about it. Um, so, and if we're friends, like you said, like this is real life. I saw somebody comment, was like, I believe Facebook, Facebook messed up, messes up my tone of voice. No, your punctuation is messing up the tone of voice and what you're saying. Not Facebook, that what you're typing in this comment section is messing up the tone. So I think it's, it's important to know, like when you talk or when you say something, be prepared for conversation to follow. Uh, if you have access to social media, you have access to Messenger, you have access to FaceTime, Zoom, uh, talk texting, like you have these avenues. So don't shy away from a topic you spoke so boldly about and premeditated about uh, when you post something. Because whatever I post, I'm prepared to discuss. And I believe that people should post with preparation to discuss and stand for what they post, whether I agree with it or not. Uh, I would I would prefer that way. But if you post something and it deeply offends me and I call you friend, and even more importantly, if I call you brother and sister in Christ, there'll be a conversation. And then also, like I said, I don't talk to brick walls, so I will unfollow. I love a good block report. Like, it ain't nothing for me to unfriend. I have no hard feelings because we could be cool, but I don't have to be your friend on Facebook. There's nothing that says I got to be your social media friend. So I love you for sure. Like, I love you just as Christ does. Like, we cool, we could chop it up or whatever, but I don't have to subject myself to nonsense and what I believe is ignorance because you just want some likes and follows. Yeah, as it relates to social media, yes, please check the dates and also check the sources. And for those out there that don't know, if you see something offensive by the Babylon Bee, it's sat it's satire, okay? It's not a real news source. And please, I said this in a previous episode, but please pray before you post. Man, this conversation has been great for me. I have been encouraged. I have also been challenged. And if you're looking like for next steps, just kind of to kind of sum up what they said earlier, like show empathy, show compassion, um, be willing to have hard conversations like we're having right now um, and then examine the history so we can do better. And so at this point, I'm going to give each of the panelists just parting shots um, in 60 seconds or less. It's like the, the last thought that you would like to give the people. And we're going to start with you, Matt. Yeah, I think we're at a, a place in history where we who love Jesus need to uh, be bold. And this is a time where, yes, we need to be loving, uh, but we need to be truth tellers and honest um, of all things, racism and justice oriented. So it can't just be Jesus only. It's got to be Jesus and justice. That's the complete gospel. And so when we leave out Jesus and do only justice, that's just doing some good protesting, some good stuff, but it's not spiritual in nature. So the, the justice is intrinsic to the gospel. And so that's my thing, man. It's time to be bold. It's time to hit the streets. It's time to be activists and advocates. It's time to be anti-racist, not just non-racist. It, it means that we've got to step out and be bold and active. And so especially that's my journey. And that's what I'm trying to help, especially with my white brothers and sisters. I've had people in the last month leave my church. One lady called me, uh, I'm a, that Matt's a social justice warrior. 
And I'm not, I didn't sign up for that. And I don't want to be a part of this church anymore. I'm like, wow. Okay. Uh, give me, I'll, I'll wear that badge. Um, I'm like, man, Jesus was anti-racist and Jesus was a social justice warrior. My God. You know, so I'm just like, I guess I'll wear that as a badge of honor, but um, I'm just saying, man, and it's time for us to step up our game and be bold and be real and be loving and be justice warriors. Thank you so much, uh, Matt, for sharing that. So, Allie, won't you speak to the people and what parting shots would you give? Uh, yes, I would encourage people uh, to do as Jesus uh, tells us to do. Um, the Ten Commandments subbed up in two um, to love God above all else, uh, to love with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then also to love your neighbor, neighbor as you would love yourself. And your neighbor is not just your next door neighbor, but your neighbor is people that doesn't look like you, that may not be from the same background, that may not be from the same culture, uh, but they're your brother and sister. And we are called to love, and with love comes great sacrifice. Uh, so that may mean like you may lose some friends that you thought were friends, but I promise you will gain a family if you stand in truth. Um, I will also call it, uh, say something to my white friends, uh, new friends, brothers and sisters and whoever, that if you want to be an active ally, I'm reading a book. It's called uh, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And the author explains racism as like a conveyor belt that just continues to go. So if you are either running towards racism or either you're standing still, but you're moving slowly towards it, or you're actively running against it to, to fight against it. And so I think all of us, we need to make sure that we're running in the, ex, uh, the opposite direction of it and not just standing still and standing quiet. Uh, and then trusting in the Lord and knowing that our God is sovereign, that he is not unaware of things. I, that is where my hope is. My hope is found in Jesus Christ, not in the media, not in the news, not in this church is, is found in Christ alone. And so remembering the God that we serve, remembering the promises that he told us, that he won't leave us and that we won't forsake us. And that this, this is just a part of the game. This is a part of the journey. Uh, so stay encouraged, like be hopeful, be, be a little optimistic because people, the church is now talking. Your, your prayers are now answered on if the church can talk. We are the church and we are speaking and we're speaking out against it. Uh, so let's continue these conversations. Uh, and, and see what the Lord has next for us. Thank you so much, Allie, for sharing that. And Kat, um, no pressure, but you have the last words. Yeah, I just want to say, um, besides everything else that you, Allie and Matt said, that was really, really good. Um, I just want to also say, just ask good questions. And by that, obviously, I don't mean burden our, uh, you know, burden people of color more um, by having them be your personal tutors. But be willing to ask questions about the foundation of what you believe and why you believe it. Um, be willing to question, you know, like I say, question everything. I mean, God can handle it. Like God's not going to be, you know, like the foundation of, you know, who God is not going to crumble because you're questioning what you believe and why and who taught it to you and the foundation of where it comes from. Um, you know, be willing, willing to question the system, right? Ask questions like, hey, how are the police what they are? Like, just do research, right? Like, it, when people talk about defund the police, look up what that means, right? Like, be ask good questions, do good research, um, be willing to be wrong, be willing to... and. Like I was saying, well, you know, when I first started questioning the, the role of women in the church, or even when I just started questioning the way women are treated in many spaces in the church, that 
I lost a lot of friends for that, of course. And I was called a heretic within seconds and all of these wonderful things. But, uh, you know, I had to be willing to let the foundation of what I thought was right or true or whatever crumble, you know, and that's not wrong to ask those questions and God will, you know, guide you in those things. Um, your Christian community, your church will walk alongside you, but just ask good, hard, difficult questions to yourself, to, to people that you trust. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, what everyone else said, just repent and be bold and, and speak up. Um, cause it is, it's the road is, is long and hard. Um, and also show grace to others and to yourself. I always say this all the time, like we need to be easy on ourselves, you know, like productivity has been low and all these things, you know, anxiety has been high. And so I keep saying, you know, Kat, just show yourself some grace. You know, things are, are, are just complicated right now. Um, and last thing, life is complicated. Faith is complicated. These conversations are complicated. Just be willing to sit in the tension. Sometimes we don't know and that's okay. And things are, just really complicated. Um, I, that's like one of my favorite, Hey, you know, so what does this mean in the Bible? I don't know. It could mean a lot of things, you know, right. It's okay. Just sit in that. It's okay to sit in that. Man, what a conversation. Cat, Allie, Matt, I just want to thank you so much just for your time for your voice. This is going to be like the longest podcast to date, but I believe as a podcast, like if the conversation is good, we're going to keep going. And if you have to listen to this in two parts, so be it. And so friends to connect with my guests, please be sure to check the show notes for their information and listeners. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. As I said, it was a long conversation, but this was a necessary conversation. And my challenge to you, I want you to enlarge your circle. If everybody in your circle and your immediate sphere of influence look like you, think like you, vote like you, go to the same church or the same denomination as you, consider enlarging your circle and embrace the blessing of diversity. Man, Isaiah 1 and 17 says, learn to do good. Keyword, learn. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. You see those action verbs there. Friends, we have work to do as we aim to bring about change and solutions. Last thing for real, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. But before we can become one and truly embrace unity in the midst of diversity, we must have these necessary conversations. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.